Welcome to the Empower Podcast by Mitchell. Good morning and welcome to Mitchell's COVID impacts, long-term effects of COVID-19 on the workers' compensation industry, specifically talking about pharmacy. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, Without further ado, I would love to introduce our esteemed guest today. Uh, We have Dr. Mitch Freeman. He leads and develops industry-leading clinical intervention programs for clients to help ensure injured employees' safety and reduce pharmacy expenditure. Dr. Freeman also supports the strategic direction of the division by leading PBM product development initiatives and serving as a clinical PBM expert to support client needs. You've probably seen our chief clinical officer in many articles and podcasts Uh, all over the internet. So we're very happy to have him. Welcome, Dr. Freeman. And we also have Brian Allen, um, an esteemed author and uh, expert. He's nationally recognized uh, for policy work in workers' compensation insurance across the country. He serves as our vice president of governmental affairs for Mitchell Pharmacy Solutions. And in that role, Allen provides clients with insights into new legislation and regulations in pharmacy solutions and workers' compensation. So prolific authors, lots of information. Um, Let's go ahead and get started. But uh, as we do, we'd love to hear a little bit more about what's on your mind. So what's your biggest concern for your program right now? We have a poll going. Is it COVID-19? Is it work from home? Is it the economic impact to your program? Or is it more day-to-day claims management? You're just in it to win it. So we'll give you just a second. All you have to do is click through. We'd love to hear what's on your mind. And um, we have a few more of these. While you're doing that, it's my pleasure to uh, introduce myself as your host. I'm Shelly Callahan on uh, Mitchell Pharmacy Solutions, the host of the Empower podcast. Uh, We hope you join for all of our podcasts. But let's see what's on your mind today. Okay, so we've got we've got a mix. It looks like COVID nineteen is the the biggest because uh, that makes sense. That's probably why you joined us today. Um, economic impact is running second, and then it's pretty even for for the rest. Um, we'll be addressing a lot of these issues today. I think. Um, We've got kind of a a mix of topics, so uh, let's jump in now that our uh, speakers know a little bit more about what's on your mind. Okay, so what is the current impact of COVID-19 on the industry? Um, Let's start with presumption efforts. Uh, I feel like this is something that we're thinking a lot about. You can see um, our map in the screen. what, what are we doing um, right now, Brian, on presumption laws and other legislative changes? Well, thanks, Shelley, and uh, welcome, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. So presumption has been a topic of uh, many in many state houses and in governor's offices around the country, and it is a hot topic. Um, as you can see, the states in green all have all passed 
legislation related to presumptions for COVID-19. Illinois, we, the reason Illinois should be is green, but it's also in yellow because they had an executive order that that went out and there was a rule that was done to provide a presumption. And that rule was um, ultimately withdrawn over the threat of legal action. And so the legislature responded with uh, legislation. And so they did pass a bill, uh, but uh, it's, I, I just wanted to point out that it's it's not a, a workers' comp presumption is not uh, an easy road a lot of times in some of these states. Um, I can tell you that it was tried in Kansas and it failed. Uh, Louisiana, actually, their session just ended and their bill did not pass. So that that bill that, that they, they were considering did not did not advance in Utah. They passed a bill earlier in the year and then last week met in a, a special session and passed a host of bills related to COVID-19 impacts, primarily around their budget. But the one thing they did do is they tweaked their presumption law that they had passed earlier in the year. Uh, to tighten down the definition of, of who was eligible for benefits. They had followed a federal definition. And as they got into that, they realized that federal definition was a little bit too broad. So they went to a more state-specific definition, and that helped. In California, we have an executive order that was uh, implemented by the governor. The legislature uh, has a bill running. And just last week, that bill was amended to to really mirror what the governor had done in his presumption order. So that bill, I think it's AB 1159, is moving through the session and, and moving through the process and anticipate it will pass. One of the interesting things about all of these presumption uh, bills is that they have they have a deadline on them for COVID. It's there, it's not in indefinite, it's not in perpetuity. Most of them have, you know, a, a, a date certain when that window of presumption will end. And um, it's, it varies by state. Some are ending this summer. Uh, some of the executive orders that are out there have, have ended this summer. Um, others uh, go into the beginning part of next year. I haven't seen anything that went beyond that yet. I think January of next year is the latest I've seen. But there are a number of um, states that still could. I mean, you can see a lot of states haven't taken any action. And there's still an opportunity for them to do that as as they we expect many of these states to go into a special session to deal with budgetary issues uh, because the COVID impact on state budgets has been pretty significant. Their revenue is off considerably. And so there's there's some efforts there that need to be taken care of. But we do see a lot of differences in the presumptions that are out there. We have some presumptions that just deal with uh, first responders and healthcare workers. We either have other, like the Illinois presumption and the Kentucky executive order dealt with essential workers, and it's a pretty broad list uh, that covers a lot. The California presumption deals with um, a lot of the essential workers. So it, it broadens it out fairly, fairly significantly. So what have we seen so far as far as claims go? And we have a couple of states that, that we have examples of. Um, California, between January and May had over 5,000 COVID-19 claims filed. Um, the interesting thing about those claims is about half of them uh, are either accepted or still under consideration. The other half were denied basically really focused on the fact that there was a negative test that they didn't, the person who made the COVID claim really asked when they were tested, tested negative for the virus. So it was something else. And in some cases they actually just refused to be tested. And so obviously, if you're not going to get tested, you're probably not going to be able to make a, a valid claim. Um, in in Florida, and they're seeing a pretty significant impact on healthcare 
and uh, your first responder workers, people who are dealing on the front lines of the COVID pandemic, um, 83% of their indemnity claims so far have have accounted for, really have been people impacted that are in the front line. So they're your healthcare workers, your first responders. And that's really, I think, what we expect to see around the country is that many of the healthcare workers and the first responders will be the ones that are initially impacted. I think now as you see states reopening their economies and we're starting to see a little bit of a surge across the country in, in COVID cases, many of those are gonna be people who are in what are considered essential uh, services or in the newly reopened services. So I think that that, that you're going to see the those numbers dilute a little bit uh, as the economies reopen and more people uh, have an opportunity to be out in the public and, and be exposed to the virus. It's not something that's going to go away super soon. It's going to be around for a little while. And, and we expect to see these claim numbers continue to grow for the next little while until a vaccine or, or something else comes on that helps with the treatment of the virus. Brian, um, presumption laws are, are so big for our industry. Uh, do you think that presumption laws will expand beyond, um, let's say, first responders and healthcare workers? Uh, I know there was talk earlier about um, maybe frontline workers. You could even see like grocery store workers or what about as, as people open up? Do you think legislators will take another look at presumption laws? Yeah, I think I think what you're going to see in the coming months and probably into the next year's session, there's going to be a lot of, um, you know, Monday morning Monday morning quarterbacking. They're going to, people are going to be looking back on what happened and they'll be making changes to their laws. And I do believe that as the economies reopen and more people are impacted, there's going to be a an outcry from various groups for uh, a presumption. I mean, if you were for example, if you're a school teacher and you're required to be in the classroom when they reopen schools in the fall and you have kids that come in that are sick and you get it and, you know, you've had kids in your class that had it, you know, you're going to hear, I think you're going to see different groups seeking presumptions that aren't, you know, asking right now just because they're put in a position because of their requirement to be in a workplace to uh, to be exposed to the virus. And, and, and if they're not giving proper protection or, or if, if there, you know, if there's not the proper measures in place to protect people, I suspect that you're going to see, you know, the the claims numbers increase, and I think you're going to hear a clamoring from different groups for, for a presumption, so that they're put on the same level as as frontline workers that are that are really kind of the subject of presumptions now. Um, but you know, it's it's going to vary by state, and it's going to really vary by experience, and it's going to really depend a lot on what the experience is in a given state as to whether or not you're going to see you know, a real push for it. But I do believe that in the 2021 sessions, the legislative sessions, there's going to be a lot of looking back and evaluating what happened and trying to maybe chart a path for a future um, solution if, if should a pandemic arise again, you know, how do we address it and what should be in place to address it? So I, I do believe you're going to see a lot of, of change in the legislative arena and the regulatory arena around uh, presumptions related to pandemics uh, and, and that will be a more long-term solution and less of a short-term sort of reaction that we're currently yeah. seeing. 
Okay, great. Thanks, Brian. I know that's top of mind for most people. That's why we hit it first. Um, other things that are top of mind, and, and Mitch, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about um, more of the clinical impact that we're seeing in workers' comp. We know that um, telemedicine has exploded. Um, I know I've been using it for a long time. Um, I, I'm a big fan, but it's, uh, it's some good, some bad on uh, telemedicine, some challenges. I know we've seen mail order, again, some early adopters. Uh, I, I know myself, again, I, uh, I love to get everything via Amazon, um, but we've seen a 21% increase in utilization um, just in the last week of March uh, uh, across industries. CVS, for example, saw a tenfold increase. Um, and then hospitalizations uh, that I think everybody's tracking day by day hospitalizations within their own communities and for workers comp. So let's talk a little bit about some of these um, clinical impacts and how it could play into our industry in particular. Yeah, sure. So telemedicine was really just starting to gain traction and it, it was kind of, you know, the COVID uh, pandemic hit at pretty much the opportune time where I think a lot of these technological developments had gotten really well at supporting um, treatment through telemedicine and, and through telehealth. So, um, you know, like you said, the rise of telemedicine, the, the quote that uh, 10 years of telehealth adoption occurred in within eight weeks, uh, we we're seeing this across the board. Um, and not only just in the, the traditional medical treatment, but also in the mental health um, segment of, of healthcare delivery, uh, where you did have a lot of um, need for mental health providers in, an, in a time where a lot of the country was on lockdown. So telehealth was definitely the perfect solution in, in a lot of different scenarios to try to keep people healthy uh, through a lockdown situation where maybe they, they couldn't access uh, their physicians traditionally by going into the office. So that was definitely helpful. Um, on a broader look at telemedicine, I think there's still some long-term concerns, uh, maybe post-pandemic as things go back to normal. I think the foot's in the door and it's opening up. Um, you know, when I think back to uh, the early stages of the opioid crisis and where it really came to the attention of most of the country is when just normal people driving by a certain doctor's office would see people lined up around the corner and down the street waiting to go in these pill mills in order to see a doctor to get that opioid prescription in order to, to access opioids. Within the realm of telemedicine, it's a little less visible, a little less transparent, uh, a little more opportunity for fraud, uh, waste, and abuse in the healthcare system. Uh, I think it's probably something that technology itself can overcome, um, but it is a concern on the minds of, of a lot of uh, a lot of payers. Is is this something that can be abused? That can lead to overutilization, and particularly overutilization of uh, potentially harmful addictive substances. So uh, it's something that we'll, we'll all be watching uh, as, as COVID develops and post-COVID. Uh, the mail and, order rise. Uh, I'm sorry. And, and Mitch, yeah, that just brought to mind both for telemedicine and then for mail order, the DEA opened up um, for opioid prescribing. Isn't that right? For, uh, for COVID? They did, and it was primarily for access to those medications. Um, mm -hmm. And they opened up day supply, 
um, you know, to get a new prescription, you still had uh, to, to refill a prescription that runs out, you still had to have a, a new prescription. Fortunately, uh, most physicians were available uh, either through contact, through phone or through telemedicine. Yeah, so I, the other area that we really saw a, a large change in was mail order. Um, although we're in the age of Amazon where people are starting be, to get used to things being delivered to their house, um, there was some reluctance to to accept mail order. But when the pandemic pandemic came on the scene, uh, you know, there was a lot more willingness to accept mail order. This was not only a workers' compensation, like on the screen, CVS reported a tenfold increase in prescription deliveries as well. Um, and then the fear of if, if you're an individual at risk, uh, probably one of the most risky places to be is to be in a pharmacy to pick up a prescription where you're more likely to encounter other individuals that that are ill themselves. Uh, so a lot more acceptance for mail order. Uh, finally, clinical impacts, uh, treatment is, is big on everyone's mind. And as we talk about being able to resume uh, our lives in general, really the combination of either treatments or vaccines are gonna be extremely critical. Uh, this, this disease doesn't affect everyone equally. There are a number of at-risk patients that are uh, skewed skew towards the older in age and certain risk factors, hypertension, diabetes, uh, those types of, of conditions. And so there's a lot of asymptomatic people, and then there's a, you know, a large segment of symptomatic people, but relatively small individuals that become severely ill with this disease, and that lead you know, to a small amount of, or relatively small, but not compared to some diseases like, like flu, but in the general population of those that are sick, the portion of those that actually get ill and the fatalities are caused um, tend to be isolated into certain groups. So the focus of treatment is if you can prevent the fatality or bring those fatality numbers uh, significantly down, then you, you present an opportunity for, uh, to help and, and isolate people that are at higher risk to avoid them becoming ill in the first place. And then you allow uh, regular life to resume a little bit better. So uh, there's a number of treatments uh, and some progress on this front multiple therapies are being uh, tested right now. They tend to fall into three different categories. Uh, one is direct treatment of the virus. So we're talking about antivirals. Uh, the second one is uh, anti-inflammatories that uh, tend to help reduce the acute respiratory distress syndrome uh, that, it, that leads to the fatalities. That's an overreaction of the body to the virus itself. Um, and then finally, antibodies and immune therapies that are designed to actually attack the uh, virus from an antibody standpoint. So it doesn't kill the virus, it attacks it by being an, an actual antibody to the virus. And so we've seen uh, some success in, in this area. Uh, the big news hydroxychloroquine uh, was uh, touted by some physicians as a potential uh, opportunity, uh, then it was dismissed, and then it uh, was found that studies were kind of, the results were frauded. There was fraud involved in some of the studies, came back now conclusively, hopefully finally that uh, hydroxychloroquine is not a, a valid treatment uh, for COVID. Um, there are some other antivirals, remdesivir is uh, shown to be somewhat successful in either shortening the course or the uh, duration of, of the disease. Uh, in individuals, and there are multiple antiviral combinations, including HIV drugs and other traditional uh, antivirals being tested right now. 
Uh, the big news within the last week is that um, anti, um, anti-inflammatories are showing to be very promising. Um, in one study, um, these, these have been shown to reduce mortality and fatality by up to 33%. Um, these are relatively inexpensive drugs. They've been used for multiple years, available in generic. Uh, it's estimated that um, the, the course of, of these medications cost only $30 a month. So um, big promise in, in uh, lowering the fatality from that front. And then on the antibody front, uh, there's still a lot of early, early trials um, going on in producing these antibodies. This also includes uh, serum antibodies that have uh, come from patients that have been infected and then they're isolated. So that's another category where a lot more uh, um, study needs to be done. Um, On the vaccination front, there are multiple, multiple companies uh, racing to produce a vaccine. Um, There are a number of them, you know, a handful now that have reached phase three trials. Uh, These trials traditionally take a very long time in order to uh, really understand whether they are a viable vaccine or not, uh, which has brought about um, a little bit of a of a um, issue around how do we get these vaccines to market quicker. Uh, we've heard statements that we would like a vaccine before the end of the year. The way that these trials are traditionally run is you take large studies, large study groups. One group gets the vaccine, the other does not get the vaccine. And then you send them out into their normal life so they could experience normal exposure rates over a very long period of time. And then there's a comparison done between the two groups to see if the vaccinated group was protected against the virus. The controversial approach in a race to develop a vaccine that actually works is the use of what's called challenge studies. And and a challenge study is where you take the same group of people, one group, half of the group gets the vaccine, the other group gets a placebo of the vaccine, and they are, they are intentionally exposed to the virus. And so all of those groups are exposed to the virus immediately in order to get quickly to, to know if one group, if the vaccine is effective or not. So it's very controversial ethically, uh, because obviously there's a risk in uh, anyone getting this virus, there's some level of risk. Um, but it's, it's controversial right now and, and still a lot of talks going on as to whether it's a viable way to get much more quickly to um, an impactful and appropriate and effective vaccine. It's it's fascinating. It's a, a brave new world, and, and thanks for keeping us updated, especially on on some of these treatments. Um, I'd love to hear from the our audience. Have you seen COVID claims come through? Um, and and then we'll get to a little more on the clinical side and see what's what's happening. So I'm very curious. Um, on our last webinar, we did hear from a few people who had started to see claims come through um, on the hospitalization costs. So generally, if somebody um, can get well at home, there's probably not a lot of uh, cost, but maybe just lost time associated with that. Um, but we do know that hospitalization is usually for the most serious cases, um, and so those costs can uh, go up exponentially, and we'll talk a little bit about what we're seeing already. So it's about 50-50, okay? So some people are seeing it, some people aren't. 
Um, so that's, that's interesting. Um, and along those same lines, like I uh, was just saying, there was, uh, um, there's been some, uh, news coverage about people receiving very large bills, um, which is not surprising to us in the industry, I think, um, talking a little bit about if they're hospitalized in urgent or in uh, critical care for a month, um, it's, it's not surprising that the costs can be exponential, um, both acutely and then also for the long term, which we'll talk about next. So I'm curious, uh, if it's still too early to know, or if you're starting to see these costs come through. So let's find out. Okay. So that that's good feedback. Interesting. Okay. So uh, we've got 50% say that it's less than $100,000. And then the other 50% are looking um, between the 500,000 and a million dollar claim cost. Uh, so, so not surprising. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit more, um, Mitch, I'll throw it back to you. And then, um, Brian will, will go back into some of the non, um, clinical pieces. So, uh, part of hospitalization, there's, there's the phase where they're, they're ill. We know that, um, they're getting critical care. Um, but then there are additional complications that we're still figuring out and we're hearing about this on the news. Um, what are you, what are you seeing? And, um, maybe also expanded, uh, you mentioned telemedicine and mail order, maybe uh, changes to business. Uh, what are, what are you seeing today? Yeah, so initially we thought this would be primary a respiratory disease. And then if you could get the patient past the rest of respiratory distress, uh, that, that they would be well and recover. Um, we, we have seen some long-term effects of uh, lung damage associated with it, but we've definitely seen um, additional effects on the body that have been found to be due with excessive clotting. So in that inflammation cascade, there's a number of chemicals that can trigger off a cascade of coagulation within the blood. What this leads to is organ damage in, in multiple different areas. So we've seen in, an uptick of strokes associated um, with the virus. Uh, we've seen kidney damage, organ damage, lung damage, uh, these types of things. Uh, they don't incur, they occur in all recovered patients, but we do see it to some extent. I think the big question going forward will be in recovered patients that were severely ill, what type of long lasting complications will there be? So, you know, yes, most patients recover, some are hospitalized and recover, some go are severely um, ill and are ventilated. Unfortunately, you know, there are, there are fatalities as well. Um, but in those that are severely ill and recover, what kind of long-term uh, implications are we gonna see? Are we gonna see organ transplants in, in certain areas? Are we gonna see, um, you know, long-term complications from strokes or you know long-term uh, lung complications as well so that's yet to be seen uh, you know these are things that hopefully is as the treatment side gets better then hopefully you have less complications and those that recover 
I think that's important for people to know then, and as they plan out their programs, think a little bit about, um, about those potentials, um, especially as it relates to maybe they need to cover it for presumption laws. Um, and Brian, over, over to you, you mentioned a little bit about extended, um, presumption laws. Do you also think that this will change the way businesses look at disease? Um, in the past, presumption laws have mostly been about um, first responders, uh, lung disease, or mental health. Um, do you think this will be a, a whole switch for the industry? Well, you know, it's it's interesting because at first with the presumption laws, there was a lot of activity and, and things got rushed through pretty quickly. After that initial kind of push, there's been a lot more introspection on legislation and executive orders around presumptions. And and we saw, you know, in two states where the bills actually didn't pass. So um, at least two states, there might have been a couple of others where they attempted a bill that didn't pass. So there are there, there, there's. I think there's starting to be some consideration of what that means. I mean, the reality of it is, in the workers' comp world, if you can demonstrate that you're, um, you know, without a, even without a presumption, if you can demonstrate that whatever injury or illness that you have is was related to your work and 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 is definitively related to your work, you can get coverage for it. So it's not like you can't get coverage now for COVID-19, if you're in a state that doesn't have a presumption law, you just have to be able to demonstrate that you got it as a result of exposure in, in the workplace. Um, and it, it puts the burden of proof on the on the claimant. It's a presumption. Most of the states, the presumption laws that passed are rebuttable. So it puts the burden of proof on the employer to prove it didn't happen at work. And so it shifts the burden of proof a little bit when you have a presumption law and it makes it a little easier for claimants to get covered. The other things that we're seeing as far as, you know, what's happening on the policy front around pharmacy, we have a couple of states that have, uh, since the pandemic started and just in the last few weeks have introduced bills related to emergency pharmacy care. So what typically has happened is that states have responded with, you know, uh, executive orders that deal with provision of care, health care, pharmacy care. Uh, and what they're doing now is, is they're, codifying these so that they're statutorily so when it, when there's a declared emergency these things will just automatically be triggered and so there doesn't have they don't have to be defined or delineated in an executive order or an emergency declaration so we're starting to see states move in that direction and typically that legislation involves longer fills it kind of relaxes some of the clinical controls that you typically see uh, we know, for example, in New York, they delayed the implementation of their drug formulary for renal prescriptions because of COVID-19. It was supposed to take effect on June 5th. They delayed it to January 1st. So we see those kinds of things being considered at the policy level to be made a permanent fixture in, 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 in statutory construction so that when an emergency is declared or a disaster is declared, then these things would automatically be triggered and they don't have to be revisited every time. And, and I think it's important to point out that, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic created a situation where for the first time in the history of our country, all 50 states had an emergency declaration in place at the same time. That's never happened before. And that's so this is it's really creating a new way of looking at how we deal with threats and emergencies that are out there and, and what what how do we establish 
a, a long-term solution. And I think that's where you're going to see when I talked about earlier that Monday morning, Monday morning quarterbacking, where people are going to be looking back and, and looking at what happened and talking about what do we do going forward to make sure that we have the right tools in place. And, and pharmacy care and the access to pharmacy care is really critical because you have people who are on maintenance medications that they need to stay alive and to, to, to control comorbidity issues. And there's a real concern in the in the in the healthcare marketplace that um, people have not been able to get access to care because of COVID-19. I was on a, a phone call with uh, National Health Plans uh, a week ago, and they were talking about how their practices and some smaller hospitals that are shuttering because they were not able to do elective surgeries, which is kind of their bread and butter. And they uh, so they've lost enough revenue that they're just not able to continue on. And there's concern about, you know, if, if that's happening, then how many people delayed getting care? If you're a diabetic and you were having some issues, but you were more fearful because you're in the at risk category of going out and seeing your doctor because of the virus, did you delay care that has set you back now in your in your treatment and in your and in your, uh, you know, managing of your disease. And so there's a lot of things like that that I think they're looking at from a long-term policy standpoint to figure out how do we deal with this going forward and make sure this doesn't happen the next time something like COVID-19 comes around. And the reality of it is there's some talk in legislative houses right now that, that COVID-19 could make a, you know, a uh, it, could, it could make a reappearance, you know, at some, at some point in the future, next year or two years from now, you know, does the virus morph and does it come back in a different form and a stronger form and, and, and more dangerous form? And so there's there's a lot of a lot of unknowns. And I think part of the challenge that policymakers are having is there's a lot we don't know about the disease. As Mitch talked about, we don't know a lot of the long term impacts uh, of what, you know, what 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 people who have been infected, what is what's the damage to their long-term physiology and what's going to happen there. We don't know how successful they're going to be at producing a vaccine. We don't know that yet. There's a lot of optimism right now on that, but we don't know. And, you know, and so the policy makes figure out how do we put rules in place that are sort of automatic that we've learned, you know, through this experience, what can we do to make it easier going forward should this kind of a thing arise again in the future. And so we're seeing a lot of change there, but I think you're going to see a lot of a lot of legislation around emergency protocols for pharmacy care and what that means and that will impact the workers comp world because it's you know it's all wrapped up into one kind of big bundle at that point. Right. Right. And you know you you talked a little bit about um mental health and, uh, you know, thinking about access to care. Um, that's, that's a big part of the, the presumption laws. Um, Brian, uh, quickly, what do you think on PTSD, um, or access to, to mental health as part of this, um, this whole process? Well, I think, you know, mental health, I think COVID-19 has actually created a little bit of uh, the dialogue around mental health issues for people in general um, and and um, how, you know, being, you know, isolated at home and stuck at home. I mean, I know I have a, a neighbor that lives up the street and he's he's an older gentleman and he's been, you know, super lonely 
because he can't get out and do anything because he's at, he's very at risk. He's got a lung issue. He's he's you know he's he's not that ambulatory anyway. And but he's not allowing people to come visit him because he's worried they'll bring something to him. So he's completely isolated. And I was talking to a, his granddaughter, and and he's he's really really depressed. And so this is a real issue. I mean, there are people who are suffering from mental health issues because of the 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 COVID um, sort of isolation that they're feeling, and we're seeing that spill over into the workers' comp world for for uh, frontline workers who are dealing with um, you know the the treatment of patients or, you know, the, especially you see this in the healthcare workers where they've been forced into long shifts dealing with a high volume of people who are impacted. And the, there is some concern that there may be some PTSD claims. Now, in a lot of the states, the PTSD presumption doesn't apply to healthcare workers. It's really first responders. So police fire, the people who are kind of seeing the uh, the you know the the initial you know gore of an accident or what have you, but there is there has been talk in the past, and I think this is going to renew efforts to talk about should PTSD presumptions apply to healthcare workers, and I think you're going to see a move on the part of some of the healthcare unions and other groups to kind of push for a mental health, a PTSD presumption for healthcare workers. And they will point to some of the challenges that healthcare workers face treating COVID patients as the example of why they need to have that presumption in place. And so I think you're gonna, yeah. that's another thing that we'll see going forward is an effort around PTSD for other workers who are impacted by this. Absolutely. And uh, Mitch, I, I think Brian hit upon um, some some major issues of uh, does depression from isolation increase the length of injury time and their recovery time? And then um, uh, are we seeing workers comp get hit um, with some of these PTSD and mental health uh, pieces from a clinical side? What are, what are you seeing? Yeah, I mean, there's there's been a long established connection between biosocial psycho biopsychosocial um, components when it comes to um, working through an injury, recovery, and and being back to work. Uh, those also feed into opioid addiction as well. So there's all of those components uh, when you do have uh, depression uh, involved, you do have uh, a higher likelihood to become addicted to. Uh, opioids and other addictive substances, uh, and and delay recovery. So, I, there's a very real risk involved in all of this. Is that when you combine um, injury in a in an environment of of isolation, uh, depression, uh, mental health impacts, uh, that can lead to you know not only poorer outcomes in in our own industry, but in the general health space overall. So it's time. Call your friends and uh, and call your injured workers. Um, sometimes yeah. a, a friendly a friendly face. So um, let's well, and, let's keep that in mind. Yeah, and Shell, um, just and, one point on that too. It's interesting mm -hmm. that at a time when you have the rules relaxing access to opioids, you have an environment where people are more prone to opioid abuse because of the isolation and mental health issues. So it's sort of a uh, a perfect storm for an increase in issues. So it's something to keep in mind as you look at the, you can't isolate the policy from the reality of what's happening out on the, uh, in, in the real world. 
Great, great point. And um, we know that we have a lot of questions, um, so that's great. We'll, we will get to some Q&A, and um, if we don't get to your questions, you can always email us at pbm at mitchell.com. Um, so keep the questions coming. We'll, uh, we'll answer them as many as we can at the end. Um, and if we don't, we'll be happy to, to reach out. Uh, so how will work from home affect workers comp? And then I think we already talked a little bit about return to work. Um, but let's, let's talk about work from home. I mean, it's kind of flipping the whole industry on its, on its head. I know I've been at my home office, uh, for, for quite a while. Um, Mitch, what are you thinking? Yeah, I, I think there's a number of challenges that were created, um, with the whole pandemic, massive amounts of offices moving to home, um, students, you know, learning from from their house, parents trying to work with dogs barking and kids running through their office, and and uh, it's it's been pretty interesting how um, it seems like we're more in touch in some ways because we're actually you know in someone's house uh, where before we were meeting in a in an office type of situation, but um, I. You know, there's a lot of questions yet to be unanswered. Is will there be much more work from home uh, for companies that found that it was successful, uh, that didn't see a drop in productivity? Uh, you have much less likelihood of of you know being hurt in the office. Uh, I think some of the questions are involved is what kind of injuries at home would be considered workers' compensation related. Uh, you know, if I slip on my kitchen floor or in the break room, that's two very different situations. Um, and whereas, you know, lifting equipment or doing something, you know, picking up paper to load my printer, that uh, is that workers comp, I don't know, but, but I think it's something that, that may change going forward. Ryan, what are, what are yeah. your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I agree, Mitch. I think this is an area where you're going to see some, uh, probably, I mean, I think potentially you'll see litigation and, and legislation to, to resolve some of those issues. And I think clearly the challenge, uh, I mean, first of all, I think the challenge right now today is that you saw a massive shift from an office environment to a home environment. And so risk managers didn't have time in the in the face of the pandemic to really evaluate the environment, the work at home environment that their employees were going to. So they don't know ergonomically if they're, you know, structured correctly, if they've got the right chairs, they have the right keyboards, they have all the right things that, that they would need to have to have a safe working at home environment. And then the other question then is be, it becomes where you draw the line between work and personal, if there is an injury, I mean, if, if I walk out of my office in my home to, you know, use the restroom or to get a drink of water, as you suggested, and I trip and fall and hurt myself, is that work related or is it just uh, a regular injury that we've covered by my health insurance? And so there's a lot of those questions that are sort of fuzzy in my mind. And I think fuzzy in a lot of people's minds. And I don't know that there's a whole lot of tort law out there right now available to help us understand and, and define how those might look. I think there's a little bit, but not a lot. I think we're going to see a lot going forward as people start making claims and, and other things start happening as you see people working at home more prolifically and for longer periods of time. And uh, and I think, you know, I think it's it's going to be a real interesting policy question for for the 
the regulators and legislators to address going forward is how do we how do we separate those two things in the legislative environment if you were to have to create public policy around it how do you define it that'll be real interesting to see i think it's going to be that'll be a fun one to watch Okay, I uh, definitely think it's almost like the new um, gig economy, right? Uh, in 2008, we had to start uh, dealing with all these questions, and now it's the, the work from home economy. So fascinating. Um, let's let's talk a little bit more about return to work. Um, it, we hit a little bit on it. Um, Brian, what are you thinking about return to work and, and Mitch, you as well? I'll invite you both. Well, I think, you know, from my perspective, I think return to work, it's going to depend a lot on the company and, and what they're with the employer and what they what they envision as their future as an organization. Um, I think there will be a number of companies who decide that allowing a worker to, to stay at home and working is fine. I think, you know, return to work if you're talking about a person who's recovering from an injury i think to the extent that care has been delayed because access to non-essential care or non-emergency care was was prohibited for a while in most areas i think you could see some delays i think people may maybe taking a little longer to recover um and i think i think too you may have people who are who were hurt and who have been at home and there's still this virus out there and they're now kind of getting to the point where they could return to work they may be reluctant to go back to work because they're fearful of being exposed to a virus they've been relatively safe from while they've been at home recovering from their workplace injury so i think there's some things like that 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 are you know could create a delay um and but the other thing i see is if you have a, a, an employer who's decided that you know this work at home thing hasn't been too bad you might be able to accelerate someone's return to work by allowing them to work from home if they have the kind of job that would facilitate that i mean obviously if you're a construction worker it's hard to frame a house from your from your front room but but if you're an office worker and, and you were hurt and you could come to back back to work a little sooner by working from home, that might be an option. So there, it could it could cut both ways, depending on the environment, the employer, and, and the kind of job the person is doing. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought about that, Brian. That, that's a, a great point that it, it could accelerate some and uh, put others maybe uh, a little bit slower. Mitch, what do you think about um, return to work? Yeah, I, th I think with all the parties involved in returning to work, it's really about evaluating risk. And so um, on a personal level and how you feel about going back into an office may uh, your personal perception or your actual risk may be based on a number of factors based on your age, underlying conditions, um, whether you have a family member that's at risk in your home, uh, you know, are obvious things to consider. I think the policy uh, challenges are whether you can compel someone to go back to work in an office type environment that has supported a work from home type of um, situation prior to. I think that's going to be a question uh, that needs to be worked out. I think overall, at the end of the day, you know, we all are hoping for a, an effective and safe vaccine that we can all at, at some point, hopefully soon, go all right, uh, you know, that was close. We've learned a lot and we won't make certain mistakes again going in the future. 
Um, but getting back to the risk in and of itself, uh, you know, if you're looking at a, you know, 0.5% mortality rate now with the flu being 0.1, uh, you know, that's, or, you know, that's 50 times, or I'm sorry, 5% versus 0.1, uh, the risk of dying from the flu. Um, that seems to be moving towards more towards a 1% uh, mortality rate. If you add on corticosteroids, dexamethasone, heparin to prevent clots, uh, have treatments like remdesivir, effective antivirals, if you layer these on and that mortality rate starts to creep lower to something that's more like the flu, you start having these risk calculations. And when you have those, uh, I threw my numbers in to one of these apps the other day and it came back as, I think like 0.6 was my risk of fatality just living my normal life if COVID wasn't here. And my actual risk came back from COVID to be 0.4. So these are the types of calculations that every individual has to make that my normal life before gave me a certain level of risk, and this is really no more risky myself. And then I have to add on those risk factors of I have family or is my family or people I'm in contact with uh, at risk or not. So I, I think it's, we hope for treatments, we hope for vaccines, those will lower risk. And then I think there'll be that tipping point where return to work makes sense. What we What do we do in those situations where for that individual, it doesn't make sense to return to work. Yeah, I very complicated issues. It's almost like we need to talk to each injured worker and think of them um, and their particular risk factors individually. So great insights, gentlemen. Um, I'd love to hear from the audience. Um, an open-ended question, what do you expect the greatest long-term impact of COVID-19 to be on the industry? Um, we're gonna be writing about this, talking about this. I feel like it changes day to day. There's there's new drugs, Brian, to, to um, and new uh, presumption laws to what you were talking about earlier, just so much going on. So I'd love to hear from uh, from both of you. Okay, so uh, we'll see what what people come back with, and we'll get the individual answers. Um, but I'd like to end um, with okay, that was a lot of information. We know a lot of stuff is going on, um, but we've got leaders on the phone listening and they're saying to themselves, okay, great, but what do I do? Um, what are some things that can help me be successful? So Brian, let's, let's uh, send it over to you. That, I think that was really the bulk of the questions as I'm reading through some of the Q and A's. What would you recommend for leaders? Well, I mean, I, first of all, don't panic. I mean, I think this is, it's a, it's a manageable thing. Um, I think, I think we have to be sensible. I think we have to follow the guidelines that are out there. And I think the CDC and, and your state health departments are all putting out guidelines on how to best protect yourselves and others from the, uh, the virus. And I think follow those recommendations. I think be sensible about it. And uh, I recognize that the economy's got to move forward and people have to work and businesses have to, to do their business. Uh, but I think that can all be done sensibly and safely. And I think that's my, my one takeaway is, is pay attention to those things. And then on the policy front, stay engaged. I mean, talk to, talk to your regulators, talk to your legislators and let them know 
what you're seeing and how you're feeling. And if the legislature is doing something that you think is crazy, let them know. I mean, I think they want to hear from people and, you know, legislators only know what they know. I'm a former legislator and you just, you, you know what you know when you get in there, you're not an expert on everything and you really rely on people to give you good information and good advice. So I would say, you know, make sure you're staying engaged in what's happening in your state and with changes and make sh making sure that they really are the right changes that are gonna get the results that they hope for. And I mean, in the short term, just do everything you can to, to follow the guidelines that are out there and protect yourselves and, and to be safe. I mean, and, and try to minimize your risk as much as you can. Yeah, I love that. Mitch, final thoughts on what leaders should do? Yeah, just stay informed is the biggest thing. If, if you look back three months ago, this thing has evolved so incredibly day by day um, of, of what a potential treatment is, what are the, out, the side effects, uh, you know, what patients are at risk. Uh, it, it's evolved over time. We're learning a lot day by day. Uh, there have been some breakthroughs, not, not silver bullets by, by any means, but um, there's been quite a lot of changes very rapidly. So, uh, you know, stay engaged to Brian's point on policy, stay engaged in treatments. If you have claims that uh, look to be hospitalizations um, or were severe, especially ICU ad admittance involved, uh, intervene early, get, in, get your arms around those claims early um, and stay, stay up to date on, on the latest treatments, especially as uh, uh, as, as they move from the hospital environment to uh, a community-based community health uh, provision. So stay engaged and, and keep keeping um, apprised of the latest information. I love that. Thank you. So uh, we have we have a little bit of time for questions. Again, you can um, email us directly, and um, I'm happy to connect you with Brian and Mitch. Uh, you can do that at pbm at mitchell.com. That's pbm at mitchell.com. Um, you can also connect with us on um, Mitchell Script Advisor on LinkedIn. And uh, one of my favorite things, you can actually uh, sign up for for all of the webinars in our series. Uh, so one click and you click all the buttons and they go on your calendar, which I love. Set it and forget it. Um, so you can make sure that you're signed up. You can hear uh, everything that we have going on. Um, but it looks like we've got um, some questions, uh, a lot about anxiety about returning to work. I think we talked a little bit about that. Um, uh, I think this one would be a, a good one for you, Mitch. Um, there's a couple questions on increased opioid utilization um, and then recent reports on overdoses increasing. Um, Brian, I know you, you mentioned that specifically with the, the perfect storm with mental health. Mitch, what would you recommend for, um, for people to support uh, keeping people safe during this time uh, with opioid utilization? Yeah, I mean, it gets buried in a pandemic, um, but there's still an epidemic, and the opioid epidemic is is still raging. Uh, there are still many, many deaths, and there actually have been seen to increase. Uh, it's when you add on isolation, you add on um, a lack of access to health care, um, Individuals that are addicted will turn, that ha may have been getting their uh, opioids through prescription, may turn to uh, illicit opioids. 
uh, on the street like heroin. So yeah, there have been an increase in, in overdose deaths. So it's it's important for us to stay vigilant um, with claims and, and keep a good handle on what's going on with claims. Um, you know, we've seen a great amount of engagement uh, in our clients throughout the industry. I don't think um, many, many payers out there missed much of a beat moving to, to at-home office work. Uh, so fortunately, I think for the most part, we have a good handle on that. It's definitely something uh, that we've seen throughout the general healthcare uh, perspective is that the opioid epidemic is in full effect and, and seeing an increase in deaths associated with it. Yeah, I, I definitely think it's something that um, you should be working on with your teams, with your PBM, um, all those best practices and, and getting on things early. Um, <clears throat> it sounds like people are uh, having concerns with um, both their own teams, but also um, with potentially uh, workers, they have no idea what's going on at home, what's their office set up. Mine, you only see this lovely background, but you have no idea what's going on with my keyboard, with my chair. Um, are we going to see a spike in this? Um, Mitch, are you starting to, to see any of those claims come through? Are you talking to people about how to set up uh, an office for uh, the short term or possibly the long term? Um, what's, what's happening on setting up a, the best office for, let's say, for office workers? Obviously, not everything can be done uh, from home. Yeah, we, we haven't seen a lot of new claims come through associated with injuries in, in a home office to this point. Uh, obviously, that doesn't mean that's not going to happen. Um, but all the ergonomics are, are extremely important. So, and, and we've seen a lot of focus on this in the industry uh, come about. So it's you know whether the height of your keyboard, your chair, your your screen that you're working from, um, all of these things are very important. Uh, and and have seen a focus in the industry of of uh, good pieces and awareness coming out in order to to make sure that your employees are not only safe from not having to come into the office, but to your point, being safe at home as well. I love it. Okay, so we are at the top of the hour. So many good questions, great topics. Um, we'll be happy to answer your questions at pbm at mitchell.com. Um, please sign up for the rest of our webinar series. We'll have Brian and Mitch back on some fantastic other topics. Uh, this evolves very, very quickly. We have a whole page on uh, mitchell.com slash empower that is just about COVID. Um, so we have the latest breaking, any updates about presumption laws, any updates about um, what's going on with coverage, um, all the latest stats. We've got podcasts there and guides for you. So we also have some good work from home uh, guides and uh, best practices for leading your team. So we look forward to joining you guys there. Mitch and Brian, thank you so much for your expertise and uh, for helping us understand this fast evolving uh, COVID-19 new world. This is Shelly Callahan powering down the Empower podcast by Mitchell. Join the conversation and read articles on our website, mitchell.com empower.